welcome back to the Y Hockey periodically having one of its co-hosts, Moonlight, as a baseball announcer podcast. Which which co-host do you think Moonlight is a baseball announcer? If you guess Tommy, you're probably wrong. I I, I probably could do it because uh, you know you have enough time in between pitches and stuff that I can really think up some good stuff. Uh, Maybe not in a world with the pitch know, clock though. I, I mean, I don't even know about the pitch clock, to tell you the truth. <laughs> so, well, I did a game. Okay, this is me hinting. I know, I know about the designated hitter change. I can tell you that. Well, the pitch and, clock And I can tell you the final of the World uh, Baseball Classic or Cup or whatever it's called was awesome. And, it's the World uh, Baseball Classic. Yeah, nailed it. You did. You got it right. Uh, the person who moonlighted as a baseball announcer uh, was me. It was uh, four years since I last did a baseball game. It was Monmouth State Joe's baseball. Very fun to do. Really enjoyed working out there. Nice, nice people out there on Hawk Hill. It means that I have now done work for as a broadcaster for three of the city's six schools, and I've tried to work at the other three, and it hasn't quite worked out, but hopefully that changes in the future. Uh, if you enjoyed that, that's uh, something I hope people enjoy. I've never done hockey play-by-play professionally, by the way. I watched was, it very badly. How was, how was the game, by the way? It was a 9-7 game that took less than two and a half hours, which is why nice. I'm saying baseball games are faster <laughs> now than they used to be. Uh, and this yeah. one didn't have a pitch clock. It felt like it did. Uh, entertaining. Really loved doing it. Been doing some more play-by-play of late. Biggest, biggest challenge calling p- baseball? The biggest challenge in calling baseball is when you haven't done it in four years and you're also looking at your computer on one hand to, you know, keep your eye on some stats and other anecdotes you want. You're scoring the game yourself, as I have two little pieces of paper where I score the game. You know, I keep track of all the things you need to have when you're scoring a game and other stats. And for a rarity for me, I had a program monitor off to my left. So I'm looking at program to make sure, you know, I'm looking at replays and going through all of that. So it was a different kind of broadcast than I had done in a few years. But it was a ton of fun, really enjoyed it. And then I got to come home and watch the Y Hockey Classico because I beat the traffic. Uh, we will get to that, I promise. We have a lot to get to with both teams, because uh, what happens when you basically pronounce a team dead? They become Rasputin, and they don't die. Although, certainly last night's... Uh, maximum uh, pain. Very maximum pain is still on track. We're still on track for maximum pain. That's We're definitely on track for maximum pain. Uh, we will talk about the Flyers first, because they won, but also the dynamics of... What happened after they fired Chuck Fletcher? Right. Very interesting from an organizational perspective. And I Morse change. Thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the real reason why we're doing this show is not because I wanted to talk about, you know, calling a baseball game or that roofball happened, the 2023 uh, championships, <laughs> I believe it was. A reminder yes. that no running joke on this show ever dies. They're only reborn. You, were, you, you tweeted that one out, I think, over the weekend, didn't you? I did, yeah. I t- tweeted the stream. It was it's four hours if you want to go because it's you know it's live. It's more it it was truncated when uh, when it wasn't live. But they had some interesting uh, video features in there at halftime and stuff like that. It was it was fun. It was they it was good. Have the I'm I'm a simple plan impersonator band uh, look. <laughs> Because no, it's a 2007 it, video, it, and they all dressed like Simple Plan in the Welcome to My Life video. It, it, they're more updated. Everything's a little more updated for sure. Uh, good. Yeah. Because, you know, Canada, 
I know Nickelback was just inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame or whatever. Oh, inducted by Connor McDavid for reasons that are yeah. unbeknownst to me. Because Banality. We ran out of stuff to talk about with Rush, and we ran out of stuff to talk about with the Bare Naked Ladies. I guess we just I, ran. I I just refuse to believe that Canada doesn't have better to offer, and probably doesn't like. There's probably way better acts, but with the numbers they pulled, you you have. To, I guess you know. Well, it's interesting because as we are hockey fans, we know much more about the tragically hip than any average American, and I've <laughs> and some of their songs are right. perfectly fine. But I do not understand how the tragically hip is just this uniquely ridiculously Canadian thing that has no crossover. Like you're hearing <laughs> all about Ryan Reynolds now and welcome to Wrexham and how he's going to be involved with the senators and the bare naked. Everything is, you know, the Canadian American crossover is gigantic, but the tragically hip just did not cross over at all. And right. I don't really know what it, happened there. It's, you know, when, I, I think when bands aren't more like designed or intently trying to get play on the radio uh, in in the U.S., I think the U.S. market just kind of tunes them out. So, uh, you know, the, the hip are a little more poetic in their writing, uh, and they they're definitely a little more original, beat of their own drum, and independent uh, indie. You know, so I don't think that. Uh, you know, the venue choices and things like that w was on the same sort of like radio, uh, arena, rock sort of uh, strand. Yeah. But, and, and I know, you know, I, I like them. I watch the documentary. And, and I, I get I don't it. I understand. Them. My simple yeah. American mind just does not understand the tragically hip. I probably never will. But if anybody out here listening to why hockey dedicated why hockey listeners canadians jeff barrick please explain the hip to me because i don't get it but i wanted to make one point on nickelback and it ties back to my joke on simple plan we did not do enough dunking on simple plan in the mid-2000s i was too young to do that but they are awful there's too many simple plan adjacent bands i still listen to that i have to like i still listen to newfound glory i still you know will go back to some 41 fat lip you know like those are fine but un untitled is one of the top 10 worst <laughs> songs i've ever heard in my entire life i still remember seeing the music video for that song and the song it's so bad <laughs> I legitimately a legendary level of awful. Um, yeah. We didn't make fun of Simple Plan enough in the mid-2000s. I guess we did enough because they're away, they're gone away now and nobody knows anything else about them. But they yeah, had, they, uh, they stunk. Yeah, they had that one big song. What was the biggest song? Welcome to My think? Life. That song stunk. It was terrible. I mean, as whiny a song I've ever heard in my entire life. And... When you are that age, when you're like 11, 12, 13, you know, 2005, 2006, <laughs> this stuff gets in. What's gets going in on? I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to control it. Yeah. I know. It's just, just awful. Yeah. Anyway, I guess this simple plan diversion was Hot topic and all that. Hot to yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, very mid-2000s things in the middle of dying shopping malls. Uh, I guess we're doing this. White and black because... checkerboard belts, you know, the mm -hmm. whole thing. I guess we're doing this right now because the reason why we're doing this podcast isn't necessarily because the Panthers have come back from the dead and might actually make the playoffs, or even necessarily because the Flyers are such an organizational tire fire that we must <laughs> talk about them. It's because a bigot decided to be a bigot again. Really unfortunate that we have to deal with this for the umpteenth time in the world, 
but unfortunately, that's that's what we have to do. And it's a former Panther in this case, although it's a former Panther that we didn't really have all that much yeah. fun as for when he was in Florida. And that's not because James Reimer was awful. It was just that I never understood that signing in the first place, and he was only okay. And he always gave off vibes. I mean, I, I always. I always said that he was a real, real sore loser, and there was something about it that didn't strike me well. I, I always said that, and you know, my hatred for him is just simply on the fact that he cannot stop a puck when needed or counted on. Um, and also now I find out that he just has no idea what human rights are and is not a fan of them. So, well, I'm gonna have to go at this from a couple of different angles here because this is different than the Ivan Provorov situation. I think in that case it was just very new, and the Flyers botched the situation so badly. That's more of what the talking right. point was, as opposed to Ivan Provorov is bigot. Um, and then, and then we saw other teams decide they're not going to wear pride jerseys for reasons that I want to talk about because there's been a strand of that discussion. Yeah. That I but do I, want to get into. I, I want to just say that I think also this being, what, the fourth media cycle of this this season, that they were more prepared when it got to James Reimer's press conference. And James Reimer was also more voluntarily, you know, illuminating on his stance than, than Provorov uh, and, and some of the teams that kind of just uh, head, headed off any bad press, you know, just kind of cloaking it uh, behind the locker room doors. So uh, this was, I think, a good, unique kind of mix of uh, there being a lot of use or there being a lot of, like, familiarity with this and then, uh, you know, just kind of how open and kind of on the nose James Reimer was. Well, there are some of his comments that I definitely want to talk about because it says a lot. But the first thing I wanted to get to is, before we got to the James Reimer stuff, there was a definite strand of reporting. It came from Michael Russo, who covers, obviously, The Wild for The Athletic, hinting at the idea that the reason why the, the Wild, at least, but also you could infer the Rangers and the Islanders ditched their Pride Night jerseys, was because of the Russian factor. Now, we talked about this when we talked about Ivan Provorov. And I want to say, and I saw some people dunking on this on, on Twitter over the weekend, and I want to say, I can believe that there is legitimate fear that if these Russian stars, now other Russians have worn pride jerseys and it went largely unnoticed. The Sharks had a couple of them, but with Russian stars, it's a little bit different, and I can say that there is a world in which I would believe that line of thinking and that being the truth, right. but I'm going to bring something up that I think is important here. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and I can understand that these organizations want to protect their stars, and that's perfectly fine, but if what happened is because the Russian players didn't want to wear the jerseys because they're worried about their families back at home. It's not that they would be in direct danger from Vladimir Putin's thugs because obviously sending your thugs after star hockey players in the United States is probably not a good look considering Vladimir Putin is now officially considered a war criminal. His thugs could therefore though go after their families in Russia. We know Kirill Kaprizov had trouble getting out of Russia this summer. So it is 
a theory I'm willing to buy. But you need to provide extraordinary evidence. Right. And I'm not saying that Michael Russo here is a bad reporter, and I do believe what he is reporting is in the realm of truth. But I do think if you're going to do that, you have to do the best you can to provide the extraordinary proof that that's what happened. Yeah, because people I mean, are skeptical of that. And I, I, as somebody who understands the geopolitics of all of this and also what's happening in Russia, to the best of my knowledge, as somebody who's just kind of interested in this stuff, and also because, you know, it's my life, and I have to see what, you know, these teams are doing in response to what happened with Provorov, you got to provide me the extraordinary evidence to suggest yeah. that this is true. Because I, if you don't, then I'm going to assume it's a cover because one of your players is a bigot and you don't want to, you know, dump your bigot basically in front of an audience of very, very skeptical people. And I can understand that. But if you're going to bring me the, these Russian players are scared that their families could get, you know, harassed by Vladimir Putin's goons in Russia because they're wearing a rainbow jersey. You got to provide extraordinary proof if that's the case. And I just don't think we have that extraordinary proof. I can believe that that is a legitimate concern, but I need the evidence to back it up, and I haven't seen it. That's my point here. Yeah. I mean, I agree in a lot of those areas. Like, I agree that Rousseau is one of the most trusted uh, writers, you know, for me personally. Like, if he says something, I'm. You know, like I, I think it comes from a good place. I think he does some of the best writing. Um, you know, I, I, but, you know, he mentioned 17 players or something like that wore pride tape on their stick that took warm ups, but didn't mention whether any of them were Russian or not or anything like that. And that's something that, you know, you can easily verify if you verify that 17 of them had it, right? So, you know, it's kind of like it's either it's either, you know, I think unresponsible irresponsible reporting or it's they have sources, they have information, they have things, but there's they they can't exactly say it. They can't show it because they don't want to get anybody in trouble or they're scared of getting somebody in trouble like, you know, they might have a reason why they say that because Kirill Kaprizov told told him that but he he says like you can't publish this you know you can't say I told you you can't show the data you kind of have to hint at it so when it comes out you know we're clean you know our our we you know we have no connection to this I mean I could understand that too and but that's the thing like I can understand a so many different scenarios about it and when you put something out there like this that that can lead to xenophobia you know i have i have a, you know questions and concerns about it um because it's this isn't the only front that russian players are kind of being grouped together and kind of being seen as others and seen as beholden to a government where if you look at it, a lot of Western Canadians, a lot of Southern Americans, a lot of, you know, like there's a lot of people in all of these countries, Sweden, that have far right, have very conservative, have very traditional or very religious backgrounds, you know, like there's all bents and all ideologies and all ways of thinking in all places. And And to think that 
This this can only be a uniquely issue because there's a couple Russians on each team. I mean, you know, like Pittsburgh has Russians. You know, like I'm trying to go through teams and pick a team that doesn't have a Russian. You know, it's a, it's a little hard at the moment. Uh, I'm sure there are some, but you know, Montreal has a Russian. You know, uh, Dallas had a Russian, and you know, like I multiple I, Russians. I mean, the yeah, Bruins have. You know, one. It's it's. I, I, I definitely agree so with what you're I, saying because like, we are in a sense now, all of us, that is vaguely anti-Russian sentiment because of the war of Ukraine. And yeah. look, the war and, in Ukraine is genocidal and ridiculous. And one phobia is not oh, – it's not okay to kind of pet, go into one phobia to because of another phobia. Like if, if you're upset about homophobia and transphobia and, and, and all of this – you can't then become xenophobic or, you know, kind of attribute to that. And, you know, like all of this is bad. Um, That's what I'm saying is I say I don't necessarily doubt that there is a strain of truth in what is being said here, at least in the Wilds case. I couldn't tell you about the Islanders and the Rangers, but you can infer because they have Russian stars that something similar may have happened. But that And that's kind of what the article does with that being said extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence yeah because what happened then on saturday when james reimer did what he did is that everybody dunked immediately on the russian thing where to me i think it is very complicated this whole issue because you know putin's ideas of the west and all of this like it's you don't you don't need me to go into that read the writers about it i mean it might just be simple as it might just be as simple as there's multiple groups out there that have an agenda that's against homosexuals against lgbtq against all of it like you know they're the simplest answer might just be like there's just a lot of people who have hate in their heart razor tells us there's you know like like that uh, there's a lot of people who feel more confident that it's kind of coming back the other way. And, you know, there's a lot more people being confident publicly in their hate on Twitter through their likes, you know, or, you know, saying things publicly or voting this way or espousing it or turning it into your whole political and personal identity or writing books and making money off of it and all this stuff. Like it's a lot of people feel empowered and, it's kind of a mob mentality where one person does something and empowers another person who empowers another person to, you know, drag us all backwards. So let's get to James Reimer himself, because this is a different kind of situation to one of, of Provorov, because the Sharks were prepared for this. They knew what was going to happen, and they went through with all of their pride stuff anyway, which was very, very good. Um, right. And what they did on Saturday night, not tweeting anything about the game. Now, the Sharks are in a unique position because they are a trash team that is tanking. You know, nobody even really cares all that much about the result, so they can get away with this. And also, I also think that the context of it being the San Jose Sharks is quite important. Again, where are they in relation to, say, and I'm not saying that the Wild and the Rangers and the Islanders don't have, like, they're in, obviously, bluer states too, but, and so then the Flyers are, you know, it's Philadelphia, but, I'm saying it's the Sharks, it's San Jose, it's the Bay Area, it's a little different out there. But as much as I want to dunk on James Reimer for contradicting himself and being a hypocrite, which I can do, and plenty of people have, and I understand that it's very easy to do that, as much as James Reimer has totally sunk his reputation, 
like just watch Steve Dangle's video on Saturday night about how that one guy went to bat for James Reimer and how crushed he was, you know, and a bunch of other people out there, you know, who really like James Reimer were crushed by what he did. You know, you also have James Reimer signing pride pucks, which apparently wasn't an issue, but the rainbow Jersey was too much. Again, I don't, I can't pretend to understand how his mindset works, even though I'm trying you know, stretching myself, hurting myself, trying to understand his worldview where he cannot understand the worldview of many other people because he was raised in a box. All of this is true. All of this is very sad. But to me, what James Reimer fundamentally didn't get and doesn't get is that not only did that hurt a bunch of people in the stands who went to that game and said, this is our one night where we feel accepted in a sport that we don't feel accepted in most nights of the year. James Reimer doesn't understand fundamentally what Ryan Burke said. And it's true. Even as much as I don't like pride nights and I don't think they're really all that helpful. Pride nights fundamentally at their basic essence is just, you belong here. We are telling you that you belong here. And when you see a player say, I'm not going to wear this jersey because it goes against my beliefs, I'm using scare quotes there, then what that player is saying is you don't belong here. And I don't think James Reimer understands that. And I don't think James Reimer also understands, as we were talking about previously, that in the world today, There are people that share his exact same view set, his exact same set of life experiences, who are far worse people than he is, and will use his actions to justify very, very hateful things. I do not think James Reimer is necessarily a bad person. I think he's a complicated person whose upbringing and worldview has informed very bad positions on issues in life that he should not have. Now... What is different here is that James Reimer's actions could be easily be used to justify heinous acts from very bad people. And that is something he also doesn't understand. Because you could see somebody use James Reimer as an example of saying, hey, this law against trans people, this law, you know, the umpteenth version of don't say gay, which hilariously unconstitutional garbage, they could use James Reimer as justification for that. And does James Reimer want to be used as justification by some of the worst people on planet Earth for their hateful agenda against people who didn't choose to be who they are, they are, and are just trying to make their way through a society that has put up numerous barriers against them? I don't think James Reimer understands that. And what is so key to me, is that in this sport of hockey, in life in many cases, but in this sport of hockey, we do not have enough examples of what my friend Brock McGillis will always talk about is humanizing the issue. James Reimer sees this as a very vague abstract concept, you know? But he doesn't see the issues for my community as issues that affect actual people, people that he cares about. Maybe You listening to this show think differently about issues of acceptance for the queer community, wherever it may be, because I'm talking to you about it as somebody who is experiencing it on a daily basis. 
maybe you think about it differently because you have somebody in your life that you care about. That was Brian Burke's story. Brian Burke is the advocate and the champion he is because of his son. And his goal to live and honor Brendan Burke's legacy every single day. That's why he is the way he is. Because somebody so close to him had to deal with these issues. And so Brian Burke, as a parent, felt that love and that care to learn. And most of the case with the bigotry you see in the world today, whether or not these people are like the lieutenant governor of Tennessee, who is a avowed bigot and then liking pictures of twinks on Instagram in basically no clothes at all. I mean, forget that for a second, which obviously is hilarious, but also very sad at the same time. These people do not have an understanding of the human beings involved. They don't see these people as human beings. And that is what James Reimer misses here. And Jeff Merrick brought up this point. I was listening to 32 Thoughts. And when he was saying, I'm worried about James Reimer's family, I was wondering if he was going to say, I'm worried about James Reimer's family because they're going to get flamed on social media. And that's not what he said. What he said was, I'm worried about James Reimer's kids because if one of them turns out to be gay or bi or trans or whatever, will James Reimer be able to help his kids? Will that change his viewpoint of the world? We don't know. And that's what I'm saying here is that James Reimer's fundamental misunderstanding not just of the fact that he's obviously a hypocrite, and I understand that dunking on hypocrites, particularly in this situation, is a lot of fun, but it doesn't change the situation with, you know, these bigots. They're going to still be bigots because they don't feel shame that they're a hypocrite. They know they are. Yeah. They don't, they don't care. And that's why I'm saying, like, yeah, it's really fun to dunk on them, but it's catharsis to you. It's not going to actually make the situation better, you know? It's, again, it's catharsis to laugh at the lieutenant governor of Tennessee who's damn near 80 years old liking pictures of twinks on Instagram that are 60 years younger than him. He doesn't care. He doesn't feel shame for it. None of his, none of his associates in the government of Tennessee, in the, in the state legislature, or the governor feel any shame for that. So as much as we want to dunk on it, like, it's not going to accomplish anything. My point is that James Reimer needs to understand, and if I had the chance to talk to him, I would say this, that... Because of what he did, people could get hurt. Not just because, oh, you broke my heart, James Reimer, because you wouldn't wear a pride jersey. It's because people who are actually bad, who are using you know, these issues, whether they believe in them or not, to hurt people, that, to me, is what he misses. And that, to me, is why this is so sad. Yeah. Because bad people will use James Reimer's actions as justifications for their own. He, he might not be a bad person, but he might be empowering bad people. And he I just don't, that. I don't think he's capable of understanding that. I, I really think he would need a rewiring or, you know, he, need, he would need to go through some transitive experience to, to really understand that. He thinks that people on, on the other side of his opinion are the ones that are hurting people are, 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 you know, damaging kids and things like that. So, you know, that's the, you know, it's, it, it, I don't, I don't see it. And, you know, last thing I'll just say on this is he says, you know, he respects them. He's a nice person. He doesn't have, you know, he, he's doing this out of love or whatever, you know, all of that stuff. Actions speak louder than words. He even admits that by not putting on a jersey. Like he, he's even, you know, that's what he's, his whole thing is saying is like, he can't go through this action because it's so 
that action is so important. Um, so his actions speak louder than his words. He doesn't have respect for the, for for pe for people other than him. He doesn't have uh, respect and, and love for people who are different, uh, and he doesn't want to make them feel welcome. Uh, because if he did, he would go through the actions to do it. Uh, so it's, you know, I just hope people, you know, understand that, that like people who kind of talk out both sides of their mouth and stuff, but won't go through the actions that, you know, they're showing you who they are. So, ex so expect that from them. And I want to bring up a thread from uh, Danny Wagner, pass it to, to Boulos, who had a good thread uh, over the weekend where he talked about how he was kind of like James Reimer. Um, Cause he, as he called it, you know, uh, that he was this sort of passive homophobic Christian. That's the words he used. And re go read the thread. I retweeted it. Um, and, a few years ago, he said, a dear friend of mine from the past said they were afraid to come out to me because they were worried I would hate them because I was a Christian. And it's like, that's what that is. James Reimer has nobody in his life who would be able to tell him that and summon the courage to tell them that. You know, the idea of love the sin or hate the sin still involves the word hate, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's... And a still involves implying that person is, a, is sinning. Like, you know, like... like Loving who you love and being who you were made to be is a sin. Yeah, and it's, and I also want to, and I also want to bring this up because I had watched a, a YouTube video a couple of weeks ago. It was, and it's on the idea that there is one interpretation of the Bible, or that you have to live this way in order to be a good Christian. Again, I was raised in a Reformed Jewish household, you know, in the Philadelphia suburbs. I was raised in a completely different way than he was, but. I'm doing my best to try to understand his worldview and how he was raised and how that affects the way he views the world. And I'm meeting him halfway, but I'm not sure he would meet me halfway. But there was a video I watched on YouTube. It was, I don't know if it was a religious historian, but it was somebody, if you look it up on YouTube, it's the, basically the history of Yahweh. It's like, how did this one God from different traditions, like the Canaanite tradition, become the all-knowing all seeing Abrahamic one God of, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, basically. And it's really, really interesting video. It is extremely complicated, is the point I'm trying to make here. It is beyond the scope of any one person to understand. These are religious scholars, you know, who are spending their time studying the history, the archaeology, the theology, and all of that, and how it evolves and changed. It is so complicated. Just to get to where, you know, we have one God for, you know, the Jews, right? Leave alone what happens after. It's super complicated. So anybody telling you that they can have the one true interpretation of this book, obviously nobody does. That's impossible. Let's get even to the fact that mistranslations of the words of the Bible from the original Greek it was written in to every other language it was written in to this point you know, the idea where the homophobia and the transphobia comes from, from their interpretation of the Bible, I think was translated in like the 40s or something. So again, it's not the one interpretation. The Bible has been interpreted by thousands of people for thousands of years. There is and, no one true and edited And edited and modified and cut and okay. added to. But you and... can get a completely different interpretation of the Bible if you read the version he uses 
in French or Czech or Russian. Leave alone the fact that, as I said in the Ivan Provorov example, every single religion on planet Earth pretty much has been used to weaponize bigotry. Judaism has been used to weaponize bigotry. And those people are disgusting too. I'm just going to make that very clear. I hate those people too. Those people offend me in exactly the same way James Reimer does. But I want to say, go watch that video. And I have a couple more points here before we move on. There was a line in that video from this guy whose name I'm forgetting, and I'm sorry about that. But he says, and I don't know if this is a quotation from somebody else, when we allow our faith to dictate history, we betray both. And that was looking backwards. But I also mean that looking forwards. If you allow your faith to dictate history, you betray both. And uh, I think, sadly, James Reimer and a bunch of other people like them are using their, hist- their, their faith you know, to dictate history. And you're betraying your faith, and you're betraying history. And I hope people are able to understand that. But let's get again back to the humanization of this that Brock talks about all the time. I've talked about why Brian Burke, you know, is who he is and what he is as an advocate. He's a very good person because the issue was no longer abstract to him. It was humanized. I want to also mention, of course, the Alphabet Sports Collective, which my friends Brock McGillis and Dane Pentinger have started and launched. And that's, those are the people you should be listening to when it comes to these issues because those people live it every day. There are ambassadors that the Hockey News reported on. One of them is Sam Reinhardt. I want to touch on that in a second, too, um, and because I'm very proud of Sam Reinhardt for doing that, and I believe that that needs to be very much public knowledge, and he should be celebrated for that. But one of the ambassadors is Caden Gooley. Why is that notable? Who was his defense partner with the Edmonton Oil Kings last year when they won a WHL title? Lou Prokop. Yeah. You now know why is Caden Gooley's now an advocate for Alphabet Sports Collective and the people that are involved with this. He doesn't think of these issues anymore as an abstract concept. He's like, that's my defense partner. I won a championship with him. I went to war with him for 20 minutes every night. It's not an abstract concept anymore. The issue is right. humanized. For a lot of different people, the issue of equality in hockey or equality in general has been humanized because they interacted with somebody who lives it every day. You know, say what you want about Luke's statement, which was written by PR people, and that's all I will say on that. The issue was humanized because he exists. He exists in this space, and his story has affected other people. They now understand what people in general in our community go through and how hard it is to live in that space where you worry that people are not going to accept you for who you are because of the language they use and all of this stuff that James Reimer is saying. And maybe the NHL will change its tune on Pride Nights and put something better together if an active NHL player comes out. I'm saying this in generalities. I'm not saying I know an actively gay player in the league right now behind closed doors because I do not. I am saying that there is a gay player in the league. There are probably multiple gay players in the league. There are over 1,000 players in the NHL right now, save all of the others in the A and the ECHL who are drafted prospects. The odds of there being zero gay hockey players is, is zero. There are some. Maybe if it was somebody in the league actively or a star, that this would be humanized more. But we won't know until it happens, and I'm not holding my breath that it's going to happen soon, even though I want it so very badly because of how transformative it would be for the sport. The issue's got to be humanized. And the NHL is just not capable of that humanization because 
All you have is a 20-year-old drafted prospect for the Nashville Predators, and it is not fair to put all this on Luke. He is not capable of doing that, not because he isn't a very, you know, smart person and because his experiences aren't, you know, touching. He's one person. He can't do it all on his own. And as much as I love Brock and Bain, they work their tails off to make this stuff happen. Brock can't do this all on his own either. I know because I know the work he does behind closed doors. He works much harder than you see publicly. And I've told him that, and I'm so proud of him, and I'm proud of Bain for doing what they do. But they're only two people. You need well-meaning allies to under, like Brian Burke to understand the human side of this. And when it comes back to James Reimer, he doesn't understand the human side of this. And this is the last comment we're going to make before we move on. And maybe I'll bring this up at another point if I think of something as we record this. James Reimer, when he was asked, when you see the Pride jersey or logo, what does that mean to you? He said, I think people are trying to show support to the community, and I'm sure people in the community feel marginalized. You don't say, buddy. You don't think we feel marginalized when state governments in this country are writing laws basically trying to outlaw us from public life? Outlawing drag queens because they're explicit when nobody even could identify what a drag queen is? Not being able to talk about your partner in any Schools? way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, do you think we feel marginalized right now when all of when basic aspects of our life are under attack by people who use the same justification as you to do so? Come on, James. Again, yep. leave alone the comment he made on Nazem Kadri, which was stupid and was made by somebody <laughs> thinking about a life raft. Again, yeah. this is a man who's trying to defend his positions that is that are indefensible, and he's coming slowly to the realization that they're indefensible, but he knows he's not going to change. And I hope that James Reimer understands that everything that's happened to him since Saturday, nobody wants to do this. I don't want to spend 30 minutes of the podcast talking about how you're a bigot and how your views hurt people. But I have to do this. We have to yeah. do this. If we're going to move society in the direction where we need to, treating human beings like human beings, and not watching you know, lawmakers in Uganda write laws that basically say even identifying as queer is a death penalty offense, which again, stupidest thing you could possibly write. Again, people that have bad agendas and are bad people are weaponizing this stuff for their own gain. This is what I'm talking about. And I don't think James Reimer wants to be associated with that, but he is. And hopefully he learns. I don't want him to, you know, I don't want any of these players who who feel this way, you know, to have to go under, you know, feel like they're attacked. But if you're going to treat other human beings this way for something they can't control, when this is definitely something you can control, that's unfortunately how it's got to be. I have to defend my community. I have to defend my right to live my life the way you live yours. Because if you don't think I can live my life the way that you live yours because of something I can't control, I didn't choose to be bisexual. Nobody who is transgender chose to be trans. Let's make that abundantly clear here. Why would anybody choose to live in a society where transgender people are under attack the way they are? And they're saying, yeah, no, I'd willingly like to put myself through the torture that this is. I can only do so much. I'm willing to meet you halfway, but you've got to be willing to meet me halfway. And if you're not, then this is what I have to do. And this is what all of us have to do. We've got to fight for our right to exist. We've got to fight for a right to live like our neighbors do. And if you don't want that, well, that's fine. You can choose to not wear the rainbow-colored Sharks jersey because apparently that's too in your face. But I can also do what I have to do, too. And this is what I have to do. So, sorry, James. This is the way that it is. 
And you might think the way that it is was dictated by the good book. Well, there are many different interpretations of the good book, and there are many different ways to live your life. And I just wouldn't want to live the life the, life the way you did and not yeah. be willing to open your eyes to seeing other people's stories. I try. I'm only going to be able to do so much because of my upbringing, but at least I'm trying. You I'm with you, brother. I'm so let's you. move on. That was 40 minutes of that, and I apologize. But I'll put in a time code so you could skip to other discussions if that's heavy. And I know it's heavy, but I, it must, must be said. Since the Philadelphia Flyers won the Y Hockey Classico last night, in the most predictable results of all time, I tweeted it on Monday. I'm like, it would be so Panthers <laughs> to work this hard to get back into the playoff race and then lose to a bad team. That's what they've done all season. We will talk about them in a second because there is something, uh, there's more than something. There's plenty I want to get to on them. The Flyers are an, such a fascinating team right now because they did fire Chuck Fletcher on a Friday. And I did text you at that point, do you want to talk about it? And he's like, no, I would like to spend a weekend away from hockey. And fair enough, I can completely understand that. Yeah, roof ball, baby. Roof ball, exactly right. But there's so much now happening in the fallout from this firing that just shows the organizational dynamic of what is happening in there. And particularly, it comes to the, the old boys club, the three wise men that aren't so wise, plus Dean Lombardi, however you want to describe them. You had some funny ones before we recorded that I don't necessarily want to repeat because I think they're a little mean. But speaking of worldviews that are archaic and aren't changing, it's those guys in many ways that apparently well, weren't involved when Dave Scott's like, I have to fire Chuck Fletcher. And they didn't want to fire him because apparently Chuck Fletcher was kind of easy to manipulate into doing what they wanted. Which, oh, that's, yeah. that's, not, that's not good. I, I, I have called him an empty suit before, so that makes sense. And Ron Hextall was, again, apparently turfed, if you look back at the history of the Philadelphia Flyers, because he didn't want to listen to them, which is probably yeah. wise. Although Ron Hextall might not be, you know... I mean, that clean in this situation. Look what happened. Yeah. Pittsburgh. I mean, the other side both, of the Keystone State hates them. Both things can be true that, you know, these advisors, these consultants shouldn't be so like Game of Thrones behind the scenes. You know, like it, it seems like you could probably do a whole HBO show where it just is like, you know, Bobby Clark and Paul Holmgren walking Didn't down the hallway. Didn't they already do that when they did a show you know? on the Broad Street Bullies? Right. But like they're walking down the hallway talking about how like they need to they need to undo some like trade or something or like stop this. Stop this one player from being waived because like he's the heart and soul Apparently, of the lock. They were directly responsible for the Ristolainen contract. Well, I mean, whew, yeah, I mean, listen, I I think Paul Holmgren's probably the best of the bunch as far as his tenure at the GM uh, helm. Uh, if Pronger didn't get career-ending injury if ray emery didn't get a career-ending career-ending injury there's probably one cup out of those two teams uh that philly probably wins uh but he also you know whiffed as much as he made big moves and then you know after him hextall and fletcher both just made no moves no real big impact besides just negative drags uh so yeah it's it's a shame. I mean, yeah, it's a huge problem. That consultant gaggle, whatever you want to call them, uh, is probably the number two issue. The number one issue is that they're owned by Comcast. But if you saw David Boreanis, 
son of uh, oh man, what was the weatherman for Philadelphia? Who's the son of? Da- I want to say Dave Rogers, um, but it's not Dave Rogers. Um, I'm trying to think. It's not Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. We're going about. I'm gonna to- I'm gonna look it up. It's not no. Kathy Orr, is it? Um, what was the guy from Six ABC who retired all those years ago? These are Philly things that mean yes, nothing. yes, Six ABC. Um. So obviously David Borleanis is from like Buffy and and stuff. Uh, Dave Roberts. Dave Roberts, yeah. I, I was there thinking that's go. who you were who you were referring. Yeah, to. yeah, um, yeah. Six ABC for those of you who don't yeah. know. If you're if you're listening from outside and this means nothing to you, for some of you this will mean something. That's the station that had Jim Gardner for all those years who just retired. Wonderful. Yeah. Anchor. Who was making a million a year? Was he was making. For many Jim years. Gardner was making a million a year hosting. Local evening news. Just yeah, that man was as, as authoritative a journalist as I've I've ever seen in local news. And I did some work in in local TV stations earlier in my life. Um, but like six ABC is the station where if you were became an, a a name at that station, they would keep you on for as long as you wanted. And they're tenure, yeah, yeah. And they're also the most watched local news in this market by a factor of like three or four. It's not close. It's it's pretty incredible how that dynamic works. But anyway, back to your original point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, Bones uh, sent out an Instagram where it was Peter Forsberg, Kimo Timonen, him, the co-owner of the Sixers and the New Jersey Devils, uh, and they were talking about how you know, uh, they're disappointed and it's time for a change and they're hold, all holding like one hand on a Philadelphia Flyers hat and like the fans deserve better. And it seemed like a hint that they're like trying to come up with an ownership group to make a bid on the Flyers. I don't know how that works because they own the Devils, but my, my point is... It's, well, it's... now you're allowed to own more than one team. The, the, the Fenway Sports owns an interest in the Penguins now and the Wild. I don't think Fenway Sports Group has an issue. It might be a different. Yeah. Like, no, you're allowed structure. to have multiple interests. You just can't be a majority. Oh, you can't well, be a solo majority, majority owner. The devil, so they would have to sell either way. Well, right? not no, not no. This one guy is forming a new group, so the new group wouldn't be the majority they, owner. There would still, I think, be an issue yeah. with the way the NHL bylaw. I mean, but, but, but I mean, but he might be willing. Point, to, he might be willing to divest for the Flyers. Who knows? It's possible. Anything's yeah. possible. But I mean, like, just the idea, just the hope that they're like Forsberg and Timonen have ownership stakes in. You know, they've run franchises in Sweden. Uh, Forsberg ha- has been at the ground level of Crocs, so that's some high-end business experience, if you're asking me. I mean, he's made millions from that venture. Uh, you know, I I think they could get it done. You have the celebrity aspect, like. David Boreanaz is like trying to go up against Ryan Reynolds. I love it. Uh, underdog, very Philly, very working class. I love it. Um, I don't you know. Welcome to Wrexham, by the way. I just have to have that said. As much as I dislike Ted Lasso, and I dislike Ted Lasso strongly, Welcome to Wrexham is also not my thing. Can I tell you, I felt the same way, and then I found out that the reason Ryan Reynolds wants to become an owner of the Senators is for the content possibilities. Oh. That's what he said. Oh, that's just... Oh. That's just yeah, like, right. I get why you would want that if you're the NHL, but, like, why would... If you're owning a sports team for content, right. sports team's not going to be very good. There's a reason right. why Ryan Reynolds bought a team in... Not even in the, uh, technically, the pro level of English soccer. 
regardless of that. Yeah. Just for the just for the sake of the Flyers now, how like Danny Briere is the interim GM. Apparently, they're going to hire a president of hockey ops and a GM, and Briere is going to get one of them. We've talked a lot in the past about how much flyers do you need. I was reading a Charlie O'Connor piece in the Athletic. Two. Been very good at this. And you need been, two of them. Yeah, that's my limit. And it. Two. And the and the point he was making is that whoever the other hire is, where Danny Breer isn't, is that they need somebody with no ties to the organization. Like all of the interests, like the names that are brought up. He brought up Robert Esch, who's running a, you know, a, a successful outfit in Utica. And I can say, knowing what he's done with Jason Shia, who is an openly gay announcer there, that Robert Esch would get a seal of approval. But I think the point Charlie is making is he wants somebody in the organization who has no ties to the Philadelphia Flyers. And Robert Esch has ties to the Flyers. And Chris Pronger would have ties to the Flyers. And Danny Briere is a Flyer. You know, like, and they mentioned Ray Shiro, and obviously he has ties to the Flyers. So the point is, how much in this new structure, whatever it is that they're building, do you, and I'm assuming I know the answer to this, is that you want ties to the Flyers. Because the problem with the old boys club is they think about the Flyers in a certain way that is clearly well past its sell-by date and shouldn't be how you view the Philadelphia Flyers in 2023 and hockey in 2023. And so how much of this new front office structure should be totally Flyers agnostic to you? Well... I see it two ways. I see it one way. They need the Flyers' identity. They need people. One of the reasons they get so many signings, one of the reasons they um, can stay competitive and and college free agents want to sign there and stuff is they take very good care of their alumni, but also they give their alumni the possibilities for jobs after and and teaching them about the business and all that stuff. Um, But also... It's because of the culture, the identity, you know, they're a good franchise. They take care of their players pretty well, you know, outside some of the injury stuff that I always get yelled at by Zach Hill about, Um, you know, uh, but for the most part, you know, they're one of the most respected franchise when it comes to being player friendly, you know, in the career and post the career. They have good facilities, all that, yada, yada, yada. Um, There's a Bauer rep like that is like right there. I mean, you know, there's just so many things, but, um, you know, the, I think when you look at what the flyers need to be, they need to be a perennially good and respected organization. Their, their goal isn't just to win a cup. Their goal is to con is to win a cup, but constantly be in the running for more cups. Um, and, you know, to be a, a very, cla- you know, to live up to the mold that Ed Schneider um, wanted the team to be and for a while the team was, uh, you know, for all the faults Ed Schneider had, I think we've, we've seen what life without him is like, uh, and it's not necessarily better. Um, so, you know, I think that you want somebody who knows what it takes to be a flyer and has had some success as a flyer. So for me, I'm okay with Bobby Clark sticking around. He's one of the most successful general managers and the most successful player uh, in the organization's history. I'm not, I'm not saying that he should have a deciding vote on things or run, but I think you need, 
if you're going to have somebody around, I think Bobby Clark, if he wants to be there, should be there. He's been a player. He's been a coach. He's been a general manager. And if you look at it, he's, you know, has kind of, he's up there when it comes to stuff. Um, I would be okay with Paul Holmgren or somebody else sticking around like Danny Barrera or whatever, but that'd be enough for me. I think you would grow other players. Maybe you, you know, there's other former Flyers out there who are in other organizations. Maybe you can over time bring one or two back. But I think you have to be very limited in who gets a, how many people you have in the kitchen, just to put it bluntly. You know, they had too many people. So the, Everybody has to go down in number. So the people who are outside the Flyers organization, you know, previously that came in have to go down and, you know, the Flyers faithful, the alumni that are still there have to get cut too. You know, I think you have to have a very, I don't want to say singular focus, but a very uh, specific standard and, you know, a team of people who are working in unison and working towards the same goal. Um, if if it was me, I probably wouldn't have Briere as the GM. Uh, I would, you know, if he wants to stick around and be the assistant GM, uh, that'd be fine. Um, but to me, he's not ready. I would like for him to be. But I want somebody – I mean, they're already wasted the Connor Bedard draft year, which is, like, inexcusable, unforgivable. I'm seething with anger just thinking about it. They can't waste next year because 2024 is a pretty good draft year uh, as well. It's not as good. There's, I don't think – there's no Connor Bedard, um, you know. But there's some good defensemen It's it's – it's a pretty good year. You know, you don't mess it up. I want someone who understands what the goal is. I want someone who's going to draft well and all that stuff. Um, I don't know enough about Danny Breer. There's not enough track record or, or, you know, I, I just, he unfortunately is part of the issue by proxy. He was around Chuck Fletcher and, you know, I, I, Guilt by association. I, I'd rather somebody else. So when we're talking about hiring a president of hockey ops, I got a I got a great idea. What's how about great the idea? how about the Abbott twins that are over in Rogel in Sweden that won the championship? I think one's the coach and one's the general manager. Or one's the general manager. The others, yeah, one's the coach and one's the general manager. That's that's like an out of the box idea. You bring them in, you know, because they'd have safety in numbers. There's two of them, you know. You you see if the coaches if the coaches align with uh, Tortorella, you know, you, you can you can uh, do that. I don't know. I, I I I would just be thinking outside the box, like you said, for the new blood. Uh, because the thing is, you don't want to get somebody who has experience but is over the hill. You want to get somebody who has talent and is about to be in their prime. Um, so, 
That's you why know, I kind of found the Robert Ash thing interesting yeah. because he also is, it's not an NHL franchise, but he's running an AHL franchise where it's not just players. But, yeah, but for president, I mean, yeah, would he, would, would he be the type of president that impacts and steers hockey operations or would he be type of the president that, you know, supports his GM but is more just kind of like, you know, business and human resource, you know what I mean? Like culture and I think talent. Because the like Flyers that already have the Spectacore staff, whether Dave Scott's retiring or not. The I th- president would be more hockey ops. I think so. it's a president of hockey ops that they want to hire. So if I look at the teams in the league that have the jobs separated, you've got like the uh, Montreal where you've got Jeff Gorton kind of dictating the way the organization goes and you have Kent Hughes as the face of it. That's also because of the language barrier, but you also have, I'm thinking of the Canucks who have screwed that up, obviously with Jim Rutherford, but like, it's not, it's not, I think Joe Sackick has that job, right? right. And Chris McFarland's the GM. So I, I don't exactly know the, the difference, you know, in terms of who's got a president of hockey ops and who is, how that job is separate. You know what I mean? If, if we're, I would want to take the risk at the GM spot. So like if if they're going to if they're going to have a hands-on hockey ops manager like top down from president like a Brendan Shanahan type, you know? Mm. Um like or like, you know, some like the president is their Lou Lamarillo and their GM is the guy out, you know, doing stuff. Um the right-hand man. Uh or woman hopefully. Um and like I, I don't know, like I don't know what I want because I'm one as a as just a pure Philadelphia native like fan, like taking all reason and thinking out of it. I'm just still so mad that they tur- like we went through all of this for them to just abandon Fletcher uh, like right at the de- after the deadline. You couldn't have done that a month before the deadline. You couldn't have done that before the season. Like, that's the same thing. I, I, I mean, it's it, the Gallant firing happened so much quicker. But that's the thing. Like, if you are going into the season and you, you know, you think that there could be something that happens that I'm going to fire somebody, fire them in the offseason because it's so much easier to replace and, you know, you waste less time and you give them more runway to figure out what, what they want to fix and stuff. I mean, how much damage was done from July to now when they made that decision, you know, like to the deadline? It's so much. You brought in UGM, they're definitely going to be wanting the tank. You know, I I don't know. You, you, I don't know. It's, I'm just so frustrated. It's hard. But then at the same time, it's like, I want them to do what Montreal did. Montreal did just enough to appease the francophones. They did du- just enough to appease the people who wanted somebody that was you like. Know, you know, I'm sorry for interrupting, but you, you know, know, bringing that up, I'm not saying these situations are in any way comparable, but like for Montreal, you have to have a francophone GM, you have to have a francophone head coach. It's just a necessity of the job. And I'm thinking about it in the way that with the Flyers, like it feels like it's an organizational necessity to have Flyers blood somewhere, but you need to find a creative way to use it, right? And with the Canadians, 
you know, you have a president of hockey ops who's just some dude from like Massachusetts, but then everybody below him is Kent Hughes who can speak to the, to the media and execute that vision, but, but can balance those competing interests. Same with Marty St. Louis. People are willing to give him a lot of rope, right? With the Flyers, it's a matter of, okay, we need Flyers blood, but how do we, you know, put that in a position where we do enough to get the fan base, you know, on side. We do enough to get the very active alumni on side because it's the Flyers, right? But we're also moving forward at the same time. It takes a creative right. mind right. to find that structure. And I don't know what that looks like because it's the Flyers. It's a unique organization. And I think what they're realizing is now that they've admitted they have to do a full-on rebuild is because the Flyers are currently in this marketplace, fourth out of four, and it's not close. The, the attendance right. at the game last night was, like, it was shocking. Florida. It, it was, was Florida. shocking to see it was that. Florida level. I... It was you like and Tuesday I both against grow Senators, up in this Florida. market. Yeah. I have never seen the Wells Fargo Center that empty for a Flyers game in no. my life. No. And, and that is yeah. apathy. And that's a huge problem when you are in the I'm not going to say it's the most passionate because everybody's passionate, but one of the most passionate sports markets in this country. It's Philly. They're well behind the Eagles, they're well behind the Phillies, they're well behind the Sixers. Arguably they're behind the Union. And they deserve to be behind the yeah. Union because the Union are much better run. They could even be behind the Philadelphia Wings, although I'm not sure about that. The point is, the Flyers need to find a way to get people to align with their vision. And they need to find a way to do that by, again, you have a lot of different mouths to feed. But if you find the right structure and you present them a plan that can get not just, you know, the, the alumni on side, but like, can get the Charlie O'Connors and the Broad Street Hockeys, who, by the way, congratulations on them getting a new place and set up. Good luck with them. Did you see they're, like, they're doing paid tiers, and they have the $100 tier, which is the Andrew McDonald tier. You get all the same things you get in, like, the lower tiers, but you're overpaying for it. And I, I did laugh when I saw that. <laughs> that was really, really creative. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the Panthers equivalent of that. It would probably be, might be Bobrovsky, but I would call it the Dave Bolin tier, more than likely. <laughs> uh, but I have to say, or maybe the Keith Yandel tier, although he was actually useful for a while as a, as a player. Um, but that was really creative from the Broad Street Hockey folks. Yeah. Very, very good thinking there. Very smart people out there at Broad Street Hockey who did that. I did laugh when I saw that. Yeah. I the mean, the point is, like, you have to get yeah. them on side too, because in many ways, like what Charlie writes, what you see from the smart writers in the Inquirer, what you see from Broad Street Hockey, it's like they're the ones who kind of filter down to an informed fan base, and the Flyers fan base, as we know, is very informed. They know what they're talking about. You know, they're the kind of ones who you have to get to buy in. So you have to find a way to balance all those competing interests. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to take somebody really smart in order to figure that out. And the Flyers need to do that. Because I'm watching them last night. And we will transition to the Panthers shortly. Like, there is something there. It's They don't have the elite players they need to, you know, compete at the highest level at this point. But there's some stuff there. It's not completely <laughs> Yeah, nothing. I mean, yeah, you'd hope there's stuff. I mean, at one, th this is the remnants of one of the top-rated prospect pools that's finally coming to age, and some of the trades they made are finally starting to settle and work out. Like, And they're just young, and they can finally play free because they're out of it. So Tortorella is even allowing them to play free. So, yeah, you expect you know the dead cow dead cat bounce almost mm -hmm. a little bit but like i mean 
you look at they have goalie's not an issue. They have Samuel Erson, who is you know, some fans want to trade Hart because he's doing so well. They have Carter Hart, who is very good and is on a good contract. The problem is it runs out after next year, so they're gonna have to figure that out. And you might have to pay him to stay because who wants to stay to lose? Uh, and be shelled. Um, but you know, like they're fine in goalie. But like you know, they have some anchors on defense. What are they going to do there? Like I'm, Sandheim's great and everything, but like I don't like his contract for what he is and everything. I personally, I you know, like he's Ekblad's age and he's still kind of coming out of his shell. Like and people complain about Ekblad, which is unfortunate. To talk about, but like you know, like they just. They don't like, really they have, have anything on defense. They've got the Farabees of the world. You know, Tippett's playing well, but they don't have anybody at the upper, upper echelon, which you need. Farabee, who Tortorella wants to trade. They have Konechny, who might be traded as well. And then that's a, they have Couturier, who used to be good, but who knows what he's going to be in this part of his career because of the was it three back surgeries, two back surgeries or something like you just never know. And then that's it. They have no centers, no centers. They hope cutter Gauthier is going to be a center. They hope they get a center in this draft, but like they have no centers. Owen Tippett's Owen Tippett. Like he'll be a good middle six guy, but you know, like, and I hope he's better than that, but he was never going to be that in Florida. We said that we don't have to rehash that, but um, you know, Noah Cates is, is good, but he's maybe going to be a 3C or uh, a kind of defensive specialist second-line winger. Um, you know, like, they have some good pieces and stuff, but if you look at it all together, where do, how do they fit together? And you can't really tell that until you get the backbone of the team. They have to figure out their be- goaltending backbone. Uh, you know, they have to see if they can either keep Hart or if not, move them. Uh, they have to get. They have to figure out their defensive backbone. Sounds like they want to. They they're open to trading at any defenseman on their on their roster. Uh, you know, like that's ridiculous. And they have to figure out centers, which is the the number one way to win a cup is to have good center depth. Whatever so, you want to say about the Panthers, they figured. I mean, you can argue about. Ekblad, well, some but- some people have have tweeted that they'd rather have Owen Tippett than Anton Lundell. That's stupid. Yeah. Um, and but whatever you want to say about the Panthers and the issues that they've had, like they got the number one center right. Like it's they much the- easier to be in the position that Florida was in for years, where it's like, okay, you've got your franchise center. They think they have the franchise defenseman. Debatable, but we can talk about that. I don't. Yeah, I mean, they had they had, well, but they had more in terms of the potential elite talent that the Flyers just don't have. And you, the way you get elite talent is either you get one or two, you know, top picks in the draft, which the Flyers have not had, or at this point you're trading away, you know, Carter Hart to a goalie needy team and seeing if you can get something in that vicinity. And I don't know whether teams are going to be willing to do that. We'll see. Because Carter Hart's been pretty good this year. Like, that's that's not yeah. been a problem. But also, like, if you're going to have the young goalies, Urson and Sandstrom, are you going to want them to get shelled, you know, when you're yeah, I mean, bottoming there's... out? You know, the, yeah. these are the questions it's, that, they, it's tough. that the Flyers have to answer. Which is why they need someone who has, like, a vision, and then they need to stick with it. I mean, like, the problem is they stick to the visions that's 
su- like suck and are going wrong. Like they don't know when to cut bait uh, on on the bad ones. But um, you know, it seems like there's some panic or like with Hextall, there was a rush to move away from his vision. With Fletcher, with Fletcher. It seemed like Fletcher had so much input to change his vision so much he kept changing. Like, you know, like it just, you, you couldn't tell. He kept going in and out, like one foot in, one foot out. Like he was trying to rebuild, but also, you know, signing Ristolainen. It was hard that's to read. Where the, that's where the, the, the three wise men came in, apparently. Yeah. And it's like they need a cohesive organizational structure. And if the goal now is to actually rebuild, you know, to do the rebuild the right way, whether they're going to tear it down or they're going to, whatever it is, you got to stick with it because you can't lurch from thing to thing. You know, you actually have to go through with it. That means there's going to be more pain, but if you execute it properly and you message it properly, like your, you know, Montreal, for instance, you know what I mean? Then people can get on side really quickly, but you need a vision that people believe in and you also need to message that vision properly. And the issue I have with the Flyers isn't necessarily that they can get to the vision, although that's a problem. It's they got to message it. Because it's clear to me that when you read some of those pieces, like from the Inquirer or elsewhere, you got people leaking from different sides of the story, and therefore yeah. there's no consistent, you know, there's no message discipline. And the Flyers need message discipline, you know? And, and they don't have that. And hopefully they find the structure where they can do that. Because... You know, that's also part of the battle. It's not just putting, you know, making transactions. It's messaging that the way you needed to. And Chuck Fletcher was not good at that. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, everything's about whether they get a top three draft pick or not. Maybe even top four if you think, well, top if they get a top three draft pick, that means they get Bedard, Fantilli, or Carlson. Or even Mitch Goff. Well, well. The reason I won't say Mitchkoff is because it won't change, like it won't make like if if they get one of those three that I just named, those are centers who are gonna play like in a year or two in the NHL and are gonna be good sooner rather than later, most likely. Mm. Um, so then I wouldn't want to trade a bunch of players. Like I wouldn't be interested in trading Konechny. I wouldn't be interested in trading Hart. But if they draft fifth or sixth. I would probably want to trade Hart. I would probably maybe want to trade Konechny because it, it'll probably be a longer way out because you're waiting four years for Mitchkoff to come over. You're waiting four years for Andrew Kristall or you know Will Smith or whoever to, to kind of hit the ground running and get in the lineup. So at that point, you know you got to start moving some players who could give you a crap ton of prospects and draft picks. I mean, like if you traded Carter Hart, to the right team, like if Montreal's trying to turn this around quickly, they would love Carter Hart. LA, we've talked about LA with yeah. players before. Yep, like they would, you know, and Philadelphia could take that contract, you know, take a contract they don't want because they have some money tied up in goalies. I mean, they got rid of Quick, but they still have, uh, you know, Cal Peterson, yeah, and they could yeah, eat Cal that Peterson. contract for a little bit, and that could add yeah. a little bit more flexibility, you know. Yeah, but I mean, like they could get like a Quinton Byfield, maybe. To, you know, like that's a, a Quinton Byfield or a and a defender prospect. prospect. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, they could get a Helga Granz who 
would fit Tortorella and Bobby Clark and my uh, idea of a good defenseman. So, you know, that would be good. I, you know, I, so like, it depends, but if they get, you know, five, six, seven, you know, right now, if, let me just quickly do this league sort by points the other way. One, I have Tankathon two. open right now and the Flyers, if you look at Tankathon, they're sixth. If they sixth. go by points percentage. Three, three to four years before that draft pick is in the NHL and probably five years before you're trying to win with that prospect if they draft six if you draft three that's now two or three years because i mean i think fantilli who plays at michigan is a center uh would have gone first last year would go first overall next year um so if you get two and you get adam fantilli no that's awesome that's great if you get leo carlson uh you know his big compare i'm not big in the comparables and everything but you know, the one comparable I keep seeing with him is Matt Sundin. You know, he's just a Swedish center who has size, who has intelligence, who seems to just withstand, protect the puck, keep plays alive, you know, has that has that hunger, that drive that Matt Sundin had, has that leadership ability. So that's why he gets that comparison. Like, that would be great, too. And he's playing in the SHL right now. He's going to be a sooner rather than later prospect. You know, that would be huge. Um, you know, Carlson, I think, would probably be the best Flyers prospect in a while, be better than what people thought Nolan Patrick would be, be closer to that Nick, Nico Hischier that they wanted. Um, and, you know, you can you can see then, like, okay, Katoria maybe has some longevity if you play keep his minutes down for the next couple of years and and ramp him back up uh you know you can see some things working out if they don't get that top three pick man and that's why i'm so frustrated because that could have been in the bank that could have been money like they they could easily easily be 10 points lower than they are right now which would put them tied with chicago for third third worst it, it, it's really uh, funny how in the league right now some of these bad teams like Arizona is apparently on a heater and the Canucks are winning. So it's like, what's uh, you said you're open to uh, Tankathon. What's yeah. the difference in percentage for number one odds between six and five? Between six and five to win the number one overall pick, the difference between six and five is eight point five and seven point five percent. So a whole percentage point. It's a whole percentage point. Now, if what about for at, top three? For top three, the to get a the number one overall pick, it would be eleven point five percent for Chicago right now, and the Flyers at seven point five percent. I don't know how the math would work yeah. out, but I but, can I say mean, like, that. I I think there's a big drop off between five and six, and looking at the points, like the top four is not within grasp. I mean, like there's a. But Montreal's right with them. Um, if they smarten up and start dropping some games here, Montreal's trying to lose some games too. Yeah, they they, 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 they can let to put Montreal on season-ending injury. Yeah, whatever. I mean, like the last in the last three games, the Flyers have picked up way too many points and have jumped Montreal. They used why to be on the you, other why side. Why didn't you whisper in Danny Briere's ear some sweet nothing saying, "Hey, you got to let the Panthers yeah. win this. That's better for you." I mean, it's better for everyone involved. I mean, yeah, I mean. I'm sure Danny Breer 
I'm sure a, a lot of people in the Flyers front office are absolutely like apoplectic about this. Like they are just absolutely seething and trying to figure out the best way to bribe the league office <laughs> to get Bedard because Ladies I mean, and gentlemen, seriously, Snyder's look at, uh, head look floating at every, issue. I mean, besides Montreal, besides Montreal, there's no other team in the running that really deserves Bedard. Vancouver, okay, Chicago doesn't deserve Bedard. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicago doesn't deserve him. The league would they, be happy if he was well, there, but they, they, they just, don't deserve him. No. They, they're, they're just getting out of Kane and Taves. They, they have three cups. Like they also that organization was a disaster. Yeah, right. So, they so between. Nothing. Yeah, so for those two reasons, they don't need the boost. San Jose, Columbus, Anaheim, you're not going to get the revenue boost you would get if it was in Philadelphia. It would be better than Edmonton. It would be better than Edmonton, but it would not be like if it like yeah. the league would, you know, I always look at national TV appearances as a as a thing. Like whoever gets Bedard is going to get a ton of national TV appearances in the US next year. If it's Philly, I mean they're already getting it already. But if it's Philly, I mean look at the, and 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 what and he would what, be able to get Canadian. He would be able to be a American star and a Canadian star. He would get. He would obviously sponsor be sponsored by West Germantown BMW, <laughs> uh, the Mike Richards special. Comes um, out like, like you know, like he like, like how many jerseys, dude. How many jerseys? Because the international presence of Flyers fans is huge. Do you want to like, know? You want to know who would really? You know? You know what the sponsor? You're right. But you want to? You know what the big sponsor would be? Like the? I know West Germantown BMW, but he would get a Gary Barbera sponsorship. <laughs> Nick Sirianni get has everybody. a Gary Barbera sponsorship. Right? He would get everybody. He would like, get I mean, everybody. He would. Yeah, this is true. But the other thing is like. This market is obviously very eagle centric, and you know the Phillies. And if if the Flyers won the draft lottery on May, whatever it is, like eighth, there would be immediate stop to Sixers in the playoffs. There would be an immediate stop to whatever the Phillies are doing. You know Trey Turner, and yeah. they would talk about the number one pick. Yeah, I mean, and this is it would be a this big is thing. this is a franchise that needs to exercise some demons from the Lindros era. Um, and you, you know, I, I, I think it's deserved. I, I'm biased, and of course, I've left Flyers fandom to become a Panthers fan because I'd rather that fucking purgatory than, <laughs> than the Flyers. Well, at least but you get Barkov. I, I exactly. But still, I still think that the Flyers, out of every team in the bottom seven, bottom eight, even. 9, 10 with Buffalo, 11, Ottawa, 12, Washington. Well, it, Ottawa you know, would be like, giving it to Arizona. Well, the, okay, Flyers, case, but. the Flyers deserve it the most. Arizona, absolute waste. St. Louis just won a cup, and who wants to live in St. Louis? Vancouver, Aquilini sucks. No way. Um, you know, like, they, they, they're they not going to turn it around. Like, you know, like, Montreal doesn't need them to be good. Like, they really don't. They've had enough low picks. They have Cole Caulfield. Like they don't need them. They'll be fine. Uh, and they're gonna get another low pick next year and all that stuff. Well, like Anaheim, first round picks Like Anaheim, I don't know what their issue is, but they just suck. Why give them somebody else? Uh, you know, like they're making Jamie Drysdale suck. They're making Zegras do like they're wasting. You know, like no. It'd be fun if he was on Anaheim, sure, but they would still end up sucking. It, it, Anaheim's the new Arizona. You know, San Jose, 
they're going to be they're just starting and they're going to be in a for a world of hurt. I mean, maybe if they get Bedard, they they keep Carlson and they just try to win it like right away with them. Um, but Columbus, like that'd be great for the city of Columbus. But they already have Ohio. Do you really State think Columbus is going to make it? Do you really think Columbus is going to make it? Like, do you really think? Like, I, I I'm starting to doubt Florida is ever going to win a cup. Do you think Columbus is going to win a cup? They've won fewer like, playoff series than the Panthers have. Yeah. Okay, and on that note, let's switch gears. Uh, let's talk about the Panthers. This is the latest in a Y hockey show we've ever started talking about Florida. It's really funny how Yeah, that works. well, when you lose to the Philadelphia Flyers, this is what you get. You get the absolute dirt. You get, you get the back end of the you get the back end of the show. No, you not only do you have to take a back seat to the Philadelphia Flyers as they are futzing around whatever organization they want to date, and a back seat to a former player of yours that has decided to out himself as a bigot. And jokes about simple plan. Oh, that's that's not a good look for the Florida Panthers. However, as I joked at the top, they've Rasputined it because the last time we did a show, um, it was after the Nashville game, and we were both pretty much on the, uh, they're cooked, so why are you doing this? And then they promptly go on a seven-game point streak until they lose to the Flyers. But right. That loss was predictable. Um, but All right. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, let's just... I I mean just to just to kind of answer to the trade deadline podcast. I I understand what Zito was doing. He turned down assets because trading Gudis would send the message to the room and to Maurice that he was done with the year. They weren't going to make the playoffs, and he decided all of a sudden now he didn't want to do that. After in July, basically writing off the season, but I understand why he wouldn't do it because of that sort of twisted, you know. But if you look at it, Gudis has sucked. He's been abysmal since the trade deadline, um, you know. And the same, the, all they've done is fulfill the prophecy of maximum pain, which is uh, as soon as they get in playoff position, they lose to the Flyers and. Now, by points percentage, are out of it, uh, depending on what Pittsburgh does with their game in hand, you know. But they have a long road to go. It's not over by any means. They have 11 games left, and it's neck and neck. It's going to be a point in or a point out or something like that. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be absolutely brutal. And the fact that this team has done nothing to improve what they're weak at, nothing to improve the roster, um, you know, and done nothing nothing to try to change the mojo. Flyers game, they're getting scored on back to back to back by the Flyers. What do you see Paul Maurice doing? Head up his ass in the iPad on the bench. I'm with Tortorella. Take him off the bench. I, <laughs> At least I mean, you don't have to see that the re- look. The anymore. reaction, the reaction now to being scored on is head down. What happened? Not let's get it back. Let's go. You know, like the lack of intensity from Maurice. I hate it. He only gets it when the refs have a personal vendetta and try to fuck him over. Outside of that, you don't really see it. Like that's I, a little too self-serving. I, I do self-serving. have to say, for all of the so some of the hyperbole about him that we have definitely indulged in, uh, it does seem that the only times that he gets mad, or at least the cameras catch him mad, because these coaches do right. have a way of 
knowing when the camera's on you, knowing that I don't want to be looking like a lunatic behind the bench reaming out my players. There was a famous story about Ken Hitchcock that he would always look stoic when the camera was on him, but he would be berating his players when he knew the camera wasn't on him. So maybe that's going on and we just don't see but, it. Although with him, I doubt but, it. But see, like that, that, that much of stage presence or editing or whatever you want to call it, fuck that. Like that's not what the Panthers need. The issue with the Panthers is they don't finish. The issue with the Panthers is they're not committed to defensive game. The issue with the Panthers, they don't have someone to crack the whip. They don't have someone to hold them accountable. They don't have someone to motivate them. They don't have someone to rally them. That's why I wanted Tortorella last year for, for a brief, for just the intermediate year, just to take them on the run last year. Because that's what they needed. They needed someone to get in their ear. I mean, as soon as, soon as they gave up that goal and it was 1-1, Matt O'Brien, co-founder of Y-Hockey, texted me and said, we're going to lose because of defensive breakdowns and bad line goals because they can't finish on Hart. Hart's playing well, it's over. Well, I was, seeing the, I was saying the exact same thing to myself, but I'm watching that. I'm like, right. I remember, remember the first one, game one. they played in Philly would have ended exactly the same way. Yeah. They, they, the Panthers love taking their foot off the pedal. They get so complacent. And the the thing is, like, you can say, oh, well, the players. Guess what? The players are always going to be complacent if the coach is complacent. You have Matt Kachuk on the team. You have some – Montour is a very intense, very engaged player. Gudis, Stalls, aren't there a lot – isn't there a lot of leadership on this team, apparently? Like, Verhage, you know, is – you know, like, no one really hates Verhage – um, but it, the problem is, you know, they're in it together, the coaching staff and the players, and they do have their own jobs and roles, just like defensemen break it out to wings in the centers and they, you know, like all this stuff. And they have, if this person goes here in the D zone, then you go here and well, the Florida Panthers should have it. They don't, um, you know, like that sort of structure you have between players and coaches. I for whatever reason, Joel Quinville brought out that intensity, brought out that responsibility, brought out that commitment, brought out that drive, that hunger. Um, and it's only after that that now with Brunette and Maurice, the players can do that intermittently on their own. They can overcome all the issues on their own. Um, but it is, it's missing, man. I mean, like, that's, that's why Mark Donk and the Pittsburgh Penguins keep going to the playoffs every year is because their coaches, whether it's been Bilesma or Sullivan and, you know, are, have fire in them, are always changing up lines, are always doing this and that, are always working guys in or, you know, always that. And then they have Crosby, who's like the ultimate grinder. They have Malkin, who is a, a grinder. They have Latang, who is a grinder. I mean, you have Barkov and Kachuk and stuff, but if they're not used, if they're not, you know, like if they're not paired well, if they don't have the support on the roster or on the coaching staff, they can't do it all themselves. I mean, I know people are really hopping on Kachuk right now, and, and he deserves it. 
Um, yeah, he should be in the heart conversation. But if you look at Barkov, he's on a 115-point pace in the last 10 games. In the last five games, he's on a 148-point pace. In the last 15 games, it's like 108 or 109 or something point pace. He's also bringing that level of play right now. Um, and they're playing apart from each other. And they're being expected like, oh, if someone's dead, you know, put them on their line. They'll resurrect them. And, you know, what isn't being done? Any changes to defensive structure, you know, Ekblad and Forsling, who do not gel, who both, like, it's like like magnets turn the wrong way, and they both push each other out to the walls, and the middle's so open with them, it drives me up the wall. That's not getting changed. You know, Mark Stahl sucking, Gouda sucking. Uh, Mohora can't get more ice time, even though he's good. You know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just beyond frustrated because nothing's changing. We, we just had, we were so excited to talk about the Flyers because, yeah, maybe they suck, but at least they're doing things to change. And because of that, the Flyers players have rallied and are going on a win streak because they're. The, the players are inspired by that. They're not doing well. They got rid of the GM. There's a new GM, and the GM's coming in, Danny Breer, and saying, you know, let's go. I believe in you and this and that. And, you know, they're trying different things. Uh, you know, there's some new guys coming up now and playing. They're, you know, Tortorella is, you know, changing a little bit of how he's coaching a little bit. They're doing things. It's not that hard to figure out that change gives different results. And, you know, there might be 7-2-1 and one in their last 10, but if you look at all six other, uh, you know, sets of 10, they're on, you know, they're just bobbling around 500. So, like, you know, this group, this 10 might be the anomaly. This might be where they sort of get some of that regression back and kind of get towards the middle and get back to where they should be. Uh, but then, it, you know, they still have 11 games to finish out. I have a couple, I have a couple of points for, that I, I, I want to make here on uh, what we've been seeing uh, with this team. And the thing that I think about with the run that they've been on of late because remember what Paul Maurice said after that Edmonton game? Well, what do we need to change to win? Get Barkov back. Uh, they got healthy is what happened. And now that Duclair was healthy and Bennett was healthy and they didn't play last night, that's not an excuse. Injuries are never an excuse for me. They looked like a team that was playing reasonable hockey because they were healthy. And I'm assuming, maybe wrongly, that somebody in there is going to be like, ah, oh, look, that's what we could look like with, when we're healthy. But you're never going to be perfectly healthy all yeah. year. Yeah, and 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 what's what's that say about Paul Maurice, who was brought in to steady the ship, brought in to help the team fight through adversity, brought in, you know, to to give them a better chance of winning playoff series, and he only works if they're healthy. Makes no. Are sense. you ever going to be healthy on a long playoff run? Are you ever going to be healthy winning the cup? No. It's it's whether you like it or not, it's a war of attrition. If you whether you like it or not, 82 games is a war of attrition. Two separate wars with two end goals. 
and you have to be able to get through both of them to win the ultimate prize. And if you don't plan around that, or if your plan relies on you having everybody healthy all enough all like in 80% of your game so you can make the playoffs, your your plan is backfiring. Your plan is bad. It's it's just not gonna work. It and brings- if it works, it's just luck. It's absolutely broken clock being right twice a day type shit. Can I can I make another point that stems from that? It's how Corey Snyder, when he was on our show and he wrote that McKean's piece that we've cited a bunch, but it's how when everything's working for the Panthers, then things are fine. But if things break down, they don't know how to deal with that. Like last If you night, ask the Flyers fans, that's exactly how they would explain their year this year. When things are going well, we're awesome. We're going to look great. We can make the playoffs. When one thing goes wrong, we put our tail between our legs, we put our heads down, and we fold, we give up. I mean, I think it was twice in the last three games the Panthers thought play had stopped, so they stopped playing and got a goal scored against them. My brain wanted to explode. Well, it's really funny how they they started playing against the Devils on Saturday night after Mark Stahl assisted on a goal with his face. Right, and that's what I'm talking about. They thought that play had stopped, and they let that go on. Like, I hate to be I hate to be this well, guy. Mark Stahl actually assisted if, a goal with his face two times, actually. Yeah, but if Mark, if Mark Stahl got hit in the faces down on the ice, play to the whistle. You not playing to the whistle isn't going to help him. You're not a doctor. You're not going to be able to stop whatever's happening. All you can do is get the puck back, because when you touch the puck, and start moving it up the ice, they'll blow the whistle. That's the best way to help them. And 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 what was it last last night? It was like uh, they thought the play, they they thought there was a whistle or it was stuck on the net or something, and they gave up, and there was a a, a goal right off of that. I I I the team is just not focused. For where for for the amount of luck they're getting with other teams with Pittsburgh, Washington, Ottawa, Buffalo sucking, Detroit packing it in after the Ronick trade. With all the help they're getting with the Islanders just keeping pace with them, they're they're throwing it away because they're not ready for games. They're you know they're they're not focused during shifts. I mean. Uh, they're taking long shifts. Like Mark Stahl keeps taking like, not Mark Stahl, Eric Stahl keeps taking like two minute shifts. No wonder they, they keep getting scored on at the end of long shifts. You know, like it just, it bothers me, man. Like it just, well, and I wanted to bring it back. You, it's a very good point you've made about how this team is where it is. Not just because they've actually started playing decently, dead cat bounce, whatever you want to say. The fact is that all these other teams around them have just completely cratered. The Sabres became the Sabres again. The Senators added Jacob Chikrin. They go on a horrible road trip. That's the end of that. The Capitals are dinged up. You know, they, the, this, the Penguins are on a four-game losing streak. You know, there was a while yeah. I thought the Penguins were never going to lose again, and now the Penguins look terrible. 
And so that's why they are where they are. They've gotten an incredible amount of help. Like this went from a very crowded race to a three team race in about a week. And so they've got an opportunity. They really do. And, and I also want to finish it with this. There are maybe one or two other things Panthers related. I want to talk about before we wrap this up. If they do end up getting in, which is possible if they look at Money Puck, they've got really high odds or some of these other places. They've got high odds. It's not a guarantee because of games like last night, according to the Sun Wednesday, of course. To me, getting in is not an accomplishment in of itself. Sure, they were up against it for most of the season by their own hand because the stupid stuff that they were doing, you know, bad coaching decisions, whatever you want to say, and I think bad coaching decisions are, are definitely a part of this, as some people are trying to tell me it's just luck. They're not finishing their chances and the player to finish chances. But it is coaches who put you in a position to finish your chances and have a system that best accentuates the good and minimizes the bad. I can't tell you that this coaching staff has done that. Look at the penalty kill. When I look at this Panthers team, if they make it, that's what they were supposed to do. Even with Paul Maurice... And all yep. of the Paul Maurice stuff that everyone knew about coming into the year. Getting to the playoffs was the expectation this year. Nobody expected 122 points and winning the President's Trophy, but everyone said, okay, even if they're five through eight, they're still a playoff team. They're not a guaranteed playoff team. And once they get to the playoffs, the thesis of the Paul Maurice experiment is to say that this team is going to start playing playoff style hockey doing the things that they couldn't do against Tampa in the last two years. They're going to be playing either Carolina or Boston in the first round. And I know that if you followed my Twitter, you may have seen me say to some people, they don't have a snowball's chance in hell against either of them because I just don't have the evidence to suggest that they can. They haven't won three, more than three games in a row all year, for Christ's sake. If they get to the playoffs... It's then on Paul Maurice to prove that he's actually going to get this team to start playing the playoff-style hockey he's talked about, which we've seen no evidence of all year. Yeah. When they started playing better, it's because they started leading into their strengths as a rush team. You texted me on the Saturday game against the Devils that Bryce Salvador said in their last five games, they're like 45% more chances off the rush compared to their average. And I'm like, well, that might be Anthony Duclair coming back, but... That's because at their core, this is what they are. They're not a team that sits and defends. They're not the Bruins. But not any of these other teams that know how to do this. The problem is, though, like the other side of that corn is when they weren't a rush team, they didn't have defensive structure. Now that they're a rush team and they're getting more separated, they're getting more stretched out, they still don't have defensive structure. They're losing board battles, which is what Zito, we want to be really good from the hash marks into the boards or four feet into the boards or whatever him and Maurice kept talking about all off all off season. Well, they're not that good in that area. They get beat out of that area into the open soft ice where the coverage breaks down. How about that? The first Sandheim goal last night was just a great example of that. How many times did they have a chance to get rid of that thing? They never did it. And on the fourth time, they gave up a goal because they're tired. They kept getting beat on. They got beat by Brandon Lemieux, which is not exactly the way I would have wanted it. And I was seeing it last night. Like, their defensemen were getting caught flat-footed around the blue line. They're getting beat. And there's no systemic adjustments 
to prevent things like that from happening. One of the funniest things was the fact that Carter Verhage is now on first power play. And I was listening to NHL Network Radio yesterday, and even they were like, he should have been on the power play like six months ago, you know. And yep. I know you're not the biggest fan of NHL Network Radio. I think some of their shows are, are perfectly fine. That happened because Aaron Ekblad was hurt and missed a couple shifts. And then they scored power play goals. And Paul Maurice is like, you know what? Maybe this is working when everybody watching would have told you, hey, you got to get Aaron Ekblad off the power play. Put somebody else on it, please. Like, the, the thing that has always concerned me, and this is why I have always been on the coaching is a huge reason why this team isn't doing well. It's just the lack of adjustments. No changes to the defense core. No changes to the power play structure until it was forced upon them to do so. In which case, now the power play looks pretty good, doesn't it? Funny how that yep. works. No changes to how they operate the penalty kill. Very little change in how they deploy certain players. Unless they have to. It's like necessity was the mother of invention when they did it with the power play. But it's... And when everybody yeah, got hurt, it, he goes like, back to Barkoff, Lundell, and Reinhardt, a line that we know isn't working particularly well when we saw it last. So yeah. he makes he doesn't do and now what and now Lindell changes should should be yes yeah and then like he used Lindell as uh as a springboard already this season and then stayed there too long to the point that when Lindell was put back into three C to spark the team he struggled to reacclimate himself to center and so it didn't work and then you know so like. It, it seems like the the pulse is there's no finger on the pulse by Maurice um, as much as he tries. There seems to be a general willingness to work together and want the same things. But I, I you know I don't see more evidence than that on the ice, and you know just the way they play, like how little awareness they have, how how like when. The, the moment something goes wrong or breaks down or they get fatigued, the entire team aspect and cohesion falls apart where they can't connect passes. They're, they're not supporting each other. They're leaving their man open. They're like all this stuff just all of a sudden just starts unraveling. You know, the moment they get one failed to clear, the moment there's an extra cycle and, you know, it's not just a quick bang-bang play whistle or up and down the ice, you know? And that, like, to me, that just reeks of a disconnect between the roster and the coaching staff. You are however, exactly that, however, right. However Zito wants to handle that is his business, is his job, I guess. But to me, you know, they don't have a game. I've said this. This is sound like a broken record. They don't have a game manager behind the bench. They don't have a game manager on the ice. I would say Aaron Eckblad is a franchise defenseman in the way that you have this defenseman on your first pair from when he was drafted at 18 all the way through the, the prime of his career into his 30s. He's going to have franchise records. He's going to be a huge alumni and all this stuff. But he's not a number one because of injuries and also because the way they developed him, they stunted his intellectual growth of the game. Um, he, if he had more partners like Brian Campbell, maybe that wouldn't have happened. But, you know, it is what he is. He can still be a valuable number two defenseman, whether that's 
on the first pair with a number one and supporting him and being able to play his way or driving a second pair. Um, you know, his contract's still good. You know, like, just try to keep him healthy. Try to keep him from just running around too much and that's the, and have him work on his mobility. Get him to change his stick because it breaks so freaking much. Um, you know, just things like that. But, like, there's no reason getting rid of him and stuff. But they need a... There's nobody that, like, controls the pace of play, who settles the play down, or who picks up the pace when it needs to. Your they only don't have two legitimately top-end defensemen are Gus Forsling and Brandon Montour, but, who play at one speed the right, entire but they're game. Like, they're like, well, and they're also like Ekblad. Like, they don't have that ability to impact the game and control it where everybody has to adjust to you. You know, like arguably the only two that can do that are Barkov and Kachuk. Right, exactly. They don't have a defensive version of that, and every top team has a defensive version of that. I mean, if you want to win a cup, you have. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of one team that didn't have that that won the cup. Latang when he was not healthy with the Penguins. Yeah, but I mean, they would have had Latang if he was healthy. So it's not you know like the. You know, part of their core that got them to that part point and has been there when they've won other cups. You know, I'm with, going back and looking at all of the like there, Stanley there's Cup no, champions like, in my mind. Like they and... need a Roman Yossi. When they play the Predators, the Florida Panthers get absolutely trounced because, and this is another Barry Rothman point. Thank you for keeping me uh, stocked with, with points, Barry. Uh, but when Florida is a team where they don't have structure. So a guy like Yossi who knows how to impact the game and can just pick them apart because he gets them to do this, they react. Then he gets them to do that and they react. And they're just, you know, it's easy to get them to get pulled this way, then pulled that way. And then they're all turned around. So you hit this guy back door and all, you know, like that's what they need. They need a Scott Niedermeyer. They need a Roman Yossi. They need, you know, pick whatever de- defenseman you have in your mind. When I say a number one, you know, co- like game imp- changer, poised defenseman. Tempo setter. Yep. Tempo Neumann. There you go. Sure. Um, you know, Tempo hell. Neumann. I mean, yeah, Neumann. There you go. Thank you. You got a, you got a couple mixed up but i do want to say like honey ninema i mean <laughs> okay maybe not him Tony pick like, sorry in. okay just naming flyers defenseman now uh i want to say that look when they were healthy and they actually started playing you know the ways we like i've seen some games this season where i went okay that's more like what i expected right to see. you know when they played vegas in the middle of this great vegas run and they beat them clean. They, they did Vegas did offered nothing. That might've been start of a road trip kind of thing, but that's going to be like, okay, that looks more like what I wanted to see. Right. The first that should period be the against standard. New Jersey and the third period against New Jersey, where they blitz the crap out of one of the top five best teams in the league. I want to see more of that. And, and that what frustrates me, and I know it frustrates you and a bunch of Panthers fans too, is we know that's what they're capable of. We're more than aware that they can do that. It's just they don't do it enough. 
and I think Paul Maurice said it at one point. It's like, we get up for the good teams, but then when we play the bad teams, and I, it's just like, that's also not acceptable. Let's be fundamentally clear yeah. about I that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I honestly think that people underestimate how much the coaching staff impacts that because they control, they, they, the environment, the atmosphere off the ice, on the bench, in the locker room, largely driven by that. That's coaching, man. You know, I, 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 I think huge role I think in so many different because aspects. You can have a good room, but as soon as a bad coach comes in with the rain cloud, that it starts to get in, infected, you know? So like, obviously, you know, this is the 21st century. The, the players are very autonomous. They drive themselves. They have their own culture, all that stuff. But, you know, and, th- but like also I, I honestly don't think people realize how much of a difference it makes when you have defensemen who aren't wingers, who aren't just wingers. Like I, I love Gus Forsling, but he's more he, you know, he does his best defensively and everything, but he's being coached to play as a winger. Is a Montour. How many times have like, you said how much you hate hearing that? Yeah. I mean, like, even Gudis, like Stahl, when things were getting tough against Florida, I mean against Philadelphia. Stahl was like jumping the zone earlier. That was his response. Mark Stahl, his his response was to jump the zone earlier. That's coached. That's being asked of him. And you know what they need is defenders who control the game, who set the pace, set the tempo, pick and set openings and give opportunities, create the opportunities for the forwards to finish. Well, think about, again, who are the best teams in the Eastern Conference right now? The teams that they will have to go through. Uh, to... The best the best team that we've seen in our lifetime, and if you're young enough, your parents probably the best team they've seen in their lifetime is the Boston Bruins. And the, only re- and the whole thing is they're amazing defensively. They, just, they finally just found one guy who, who just scores all the time and passed or not. And that's why they've just been unlocked. Well, they've got Charlie McAvoy, who yeah. can set the tempo. They've got Hampus Lindholm, who can kind of do that, but he doesn't have to because McAvoy yeah. does it. And then they have other guys who just fit in Yeah, their they roles. traded for Orlov, who, as a four, number four and number three defenseman, is pretty good. Like, you know, that's have guys not bad. Roles. What about Carolina? Their entire blue line is just guys oh, that set gosh, the tempo. Yeah. Toronto has like nine NHL, to, nine like top nine five defensemen. NHL defensemen. I mean, yeah, like, like the Rangers have Adam Fox. Like they have the, and, and, but in, I guess in this case, Keandre Miller is more who we're thinking of, you know, of guys who just set the tempo of a game and can say, this is how we're going to play and you're going to play yeah. our pace. I mean, yeah, like, but like, that's the thing. People, people, when I say this, people are like, well, it's really hard to get an Adam Fox. It's really hard to get a Kale McCarr. I'm not saying they have to get like, the top end version of it. If but you already have you get Montour Keandre, and Ekblad, you get somebody at seventy five percent of yeah. that. But if you can get a Keandre Miller, you know, I don't think there's a lot of Rangers fans who and Keandre Miller fans who will say that he's better than Fox, but they'll say that, you know, without him the Rangers wouldn't be where they are. And if the Panthers had that, and they could pl- pair that with Ek- a healthy Ekblad, or even, you know, you know, Montour playing as he is this year, I think that's enough to get Florida over the hump. I'm not asking for perfection. I'm just saying that there's a couple things Florida has completely neglected 
improving during a year uh, and, you know, finishing, being able to teach finishing, be able to coach finishing, be able to set up your system to enhance your finishing. Um, And then the other thing is understanding how to add modern defense of defensive strategy into your game without losing what that position fundamentally is like being a back in soccer or defensive midi or, you know, like a quarterback, like your, your job is to distribute the ball slash puck. Your job is to shut it down, control the pace. Number six. It's kind of like Luka Modric. Like yeah. the most elite of the elite of the yep. elite in yeah. terms of that kind of player in the entirety of world soccer, but also like somebody who just knows how to set the tempo of a game and says, this is yeah. how we're going to play it. I mean, think about Devon Taves. Oh, yeah. Think of, think about, uh, I mean, and there's people who do this with offensive and just ne- like just an engine that never quits. There's people who do it with their brains. There's people who do it just with slick and subtle puck movement. Um, I'm thinking of like Pesci or, or Slavin in that yeah. sense, um, you know. But like, there's like you don't you, we're I, not I'm not even about getting Miro Haskin in. But yeah, how about but some like, of those other guys on the Dallas blue line? <laughs> right? I mean? Yeah, man. I mean, we're not talking about Drew Doughty, but what about those like, other LA you, Kings? Like that's what they're missing. I mean, yeah, no, you're because right. Because I, I. If you think about it, you have if you have that defenseman, that defenseman's playing twenty five minutes a night. So and up to thirty in big games or overtime. That's how much of the game they influence. Not only that, it allows you to slot in your other defensemen better so they have and play less minutes. The the impact is Huge. The only impact that would be better is if we subbed out Bobrovsky for Shesterkin or somebody like that. Like that. Like that's the only way you can make that much impact. Or cloning Alexander Barkov. I mean, yes, but if you look at it, Barkov. Well, the way that they use Barkov is probably similar, but well, if you you know, like a regular center, a regular number one center is not going to be starting the play that much, is not going to have as much chance to affect uh, regaining puck possession as much and shutting down a, 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 I mean, I mean, I know Barkov's great and Patrice Bergeron and Kopitar and all these guys are great at shutting down centers and, and big matchups and stuff, but routinely, shift after shift after shift, a number one defenseman is going to shut down more offense than a number one center. Um, and I'll, like you're, you're, and they play like five to six more minutes. I mean, people like still don't understand. Like the reason McDavid has a lot more points than everybody else is he plays two to three more minutes a night than most people, and like ninety more seconds on the power play, and all of his points are on the power play for the most part. Like if you look at his five and five numbers, it's a lot closer than the overall points total suggests. But that's, can, I, can I say the other he, thing about this defense point, I'm and just then we rant. can start to wrap this up, I know. And that's yeah. why we're going to wrap this up shortly. If you have that extra defenseman to do the things that we're talking about, you also rely less on Alexander Barkov and Matthew Kachuk to do all the things they've had to do. 
to drag this team forward. And then they can be put in better positions to succeed. Because imagine those guys playing with less responsibility on their shoulders to do all the things that a pulmonary system asked them to do. Because they got a defenseman that can do that. And I, I think Sasha Barkov, when he's been healthy this year, has been elite, as always. He's amazing. I don't care what the NHLPA player poll says. He's been underrated for 70 years. That's your problem now. Like, we know he's good. Matthew Kachuk should, at this point, if they make the playoffs, be second in heart voting behind Connor McDavid. I don't think there's even a debate about that, in my mind. He's been that insane. The play he made to set up um, one of the goals on Monday night was just was stupid. Nobody else in the league can do that. What We know what that team would look like if they aren't there, because we've seen what that team looks like when those good players aren't there. They're terrible. But what if that team had somebody who could give them more space to be the best yeah, yeah. versions of themselves. And that, Instead of them always having to get the puck and create their space and set up their teammates, there's somebody doing that for them. Yeah. That is a I mean, great imagine, point. Imagine, Fantastic. Imagine Matthew Kachuk in that situation. And I, I, yep. I, I just want to make the point that I'm not saying that those two and Verhage, you know, who's going to have a 40-goal season, who's been awesome, you know, and Sam Reinhart, who, again, God bless you for being an ambassador for Alphabet Sports Collective. I would love to hear you talk about them more. I would love to talk to you about that, and I'm so proud that you are doing that. And I may have to retract me saying, "Hey, if the Panthers are going to trade a forward to get a defenseman, it might be <laughs> Sam Reinhart." Because you can't, I can't be, I can't be saying trade the, you know, representative of, you know, a very, very good cause for a bunch of people that I respect deeply. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get away with that now. So, but but uh, think about that. Those guys, if they don't have to do as much as they've had to do at times this year how much better they would. The secret sauce of the 21-22 Panthers was those guys, the Barkoffs, the Huberdos, the, the Reinhardts, all of them, they didn't have as much responsibility because the system was so perfectly attuned to what that team was. That's not the case this year. If they had that slight adjustment, man, the sky's the limit. And I, I, I've read the Bill Zito interview with, with David Dwork, who's now working at the Hockey News in addition to what he does locally and congratulations david we love your work and i'm glad somebody spoke to bill zito to get some of these answers even if they're answers that we have questions about you know somebody spoke to him you know if they get that defenseman just get that one guy in this offseason whatever resources you have to use to get him you get him look at what that team could be because i know what this team is like we know that the core is extremely talented like, he won the Matthew Kachuk trade going away. But imagine what that team is like in that situation. Yes, he, somebody he, he won it, but at the cost of this year. I know. No, it didn't I, have to be. No. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. I guess, yeah, I, 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 just, I, I just have this guttural instinct, like, need to say something when someone says, like, he won the Kachuk trade. Because he won the Kachuk trade and then backed into, I think, the worst decision he's made besides the Sherratt trade, which was, we're just not going to try to replace Uyghur at all. We're not going <laughs> to yeah. try to get the young ones more development. We're not going to try to find somebody else. If we do find somebody else off the waiver wire, like Mahor, we're not going to give them more ice time. Like, just, if we've got somebody off Fitzgerald, we're not going to give him a chance, even though he's cousins with Kachuk and can maybe do something. Like... Can I say you know, one more thing before we end this show? Like yeah. they play terribly when they have eleven and seven. Like there's no like they already things fall apart when you know 
any little thing goes wrong. Last night with 11 and 7, I know Bennett and Duclair weren't in the lineup, but boy, when they play 11 and 7, they look like a mess. There is no cohesiveness on the ice. There's no cohesiveness in their structure. Casey Fitzgerald's just out there swimming because he's playing with somebody different every shift, and it just doesn't work. Like when teams go 11 and 7, and you're like Tampa or Toronto who have, you know, reasonably good coaches. Yeah, it, you know it, what doing. it's ridiculous. It's like they've they've played in games with each other instead of having the same pairs all year. Or like it's or like they, like when your coaching staff acts like it's a big issue if you're not playing with the same people over and over again, you start to get that in your head. Yeah. When you have things of like we can play with anybody, you can play with anyone. You can be your best playing with anyone on this team because we're all pulling in this, you know, like that. I don't know. Anyway, I hate this on it. It's but. very angry for a team that is almost, you know, yeah, basically like this a playoff they, spot, but this, this is how is much what they, they squandered a great yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Well, they better get in now because if they don't get in now, what's the excuse? Yep. I mean, they'll, they'll point to the same things they always point to. Oh, well, if we blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they have it. They had it in their hands. And they still do, but, theoretically. Yeah. I mean, right now, it's basically tied with Pittsburgh for the last spot. And they have an outside chance of still beating the Islanders too, so it is completely up to them. They just got to deliver, and if they, they don't they've deliver, deliver it. They've got they to deliver it. And as as, as I was texting with somebody on Monday night, I said they still got to prove it to me, man. Because I mean, they still haven't won more than three games in a row all year, which is insane that a team that's almost in the playoffs have don't have a three-game winning streak, more than a three-game winning streak. Like they still got a lot to prove. And when they get into the playoffs, they have even more to prove to prove that this experiment was worthwhile. I'm glad they're playing well. I'm glad they had those good moments, you know, the moments where it looked like everything was going to click. But the best teams are forged in finding a way to do well when things aren't working. And the Florida Panthers fall apart this year when even the slightest things don't go well. This is a two-hour show. I apologize for doing another one. But such Uh. happens in the world when bigots exist and the Flyers are a complete organizational mess and the Florida Panthers are still the Florida Panthers. But you can watch Rufo and I'll have any of these concerns. Good night and good hockey. Maybe the next time we'll speak to you, there'll be a playoff soon. Who knows?